We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Gilbert Dumet. Gilbert is the founding and managing partner of Beyond Reform and Development Group. We discuss politics, political activism, and all that is civil society in Lebanon. <laughs> This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatar, and this is the Beirut Banyan. I'm very happy to join you. Uh, it's my honor. It's a privilege. Um, well, also it's sweet and sour, because you're reminding me of how old I am now, and how old both of us are becoming and trying so hard for for like two decades now and still uh, looking at the country it's um, it's sad it's um, it's sad this is all I, i can say and I, i'm hopeful when i see people like you still trying sustaining your energy and i i love the moment we met because um, you came in a moment of reflection i'm having and i took these the last few months for my own self reflection For my, for my own self-criticism, rethinking a lot of the premises that uh, I, I designed my life as an activist accordingly. So it goes back to, uh, so I was born at the beginning of the war uh, in Jemaisi. And uh, I lived all my life in Jemaisi. I grew up in the street of Jemaisi and Manam Khail. And I see the world from the window of my bedroom. Uh, This is, I always imagine my life, I'm going to die in Jamezi. So it's like my, my life turns around Beirut and Beirut is, I'm, I'm orga it's, or, it's an organic relationship between us. Mm. And then, so I grew up, I come from a Christian background. So a lot of uh, my experience and my upbringing is influenced by this sphere. So I wanted to become a priest, something that uh, oh. most people don't know. <laughs> and then uh, I dropped off. And then I worked in the central prison of Beirut. Also, most people don't know with the youth at risk uh, and problems with the law. I was a teacher, a school teacher for four years. <laughs> oh, wow. But I think I'm, uh, I'm the product of war. I think I'm haunted by the idea of, of war and violence because death was always a proximity. Today, whenever I'm down in my life, I ask myself if I'm going to die tomorrow, what would I do? If it's, mm. it's, it doesn't matter. It's meaningless. I don't want to spend any energy on that. And like this upbringing, so and nothing is for granted in life. And, and also I come from a modest family. So all that I, I knew, how I discovered life was in, in the street that is on the, on the green line. Right. And then I, so, so during the, the Syrian occupation, I was very much dedicated. I was an activist in the university. So I was first at NDU, I finished my first degree and was closing the university and organizing protests and taking the streets. And then I went to my second bachelor to AG and I was the same organizing uh, anti-Syrian occupation. 
was involved in all those different spheres, I think it was my means for a, me- a meaningful life. Because somewhere, somehow, my childhood, everything seemed um, obsolete, seemed um, like totally uh, irrational the way I, I lived my childhood. And definitely between my choices and then growing up and realizing that all this narrative that I was brought about, that, that I grew up in, about Christians and the fear of Muslims and that Christians are a minority has shaped a lot of who I am today and mm. still. And I recognize this and I think I celebrate it today. It's part of our uh, heritage as a human beings, recognizing the, where, where do we come from? We reshape our own choices. I made my own choices to become a secular, I'm a social liberal, ultra progressive, and I believe in the state and the state um, as a guarantor of justice in society. But those were part of my activism. I learned this through my practice, through my life, and not through where I come from, as coming from Frere Sacre Coeur and Mona Sala and all these things. <laughs> 2005, we met. I think it was a determinant moment in my life because irrespective of uh, people's position vis-a-vis the Hariri agenda and so on, irrelevant. There is a prime minister that was assassinated in a time where the Syrians were occupying the country. I was one of the organizers, one of, one of those people who were taking the streets during that. Uh, you, can, you can interrupt me anytime I take too much time. On the because contrary. you touch a point that's very emotional. <laughs> Jaber, actually, I, I, so I'm going to say this and I'm going to keep this in the episode. Um, the way you're describing your childhood is, is very attractive. And I did not know that you were born in Jamezi. I didn't know that you were thinking about pursuing a, a different career altogether. A sort of a very modest and very perhaps a very different lifestyle through through religion and the church. So these are very very interesting things for me to know as well. I'm I'm glad you're saying that. So there's no way I'm going to interrupt you here. It's 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 speaking volumes to me because I really don't know you. I honestly don't know you pre 2005. So I'm, I'm glad you're kind of setting the stage for how you got here in many ways. So please please keep going. So. So uh, 2005 was was the see the revolution and organizing and uh, I was part of a group who created something we called Nahwal Mawatiniya during yes. then like towards citizenship and it's about promoting citizenship and accountability uh, in government but also promoting the role of the state to ensure social justice in society so and and during then so there was the like closing Beirut with Hezbollah and and the FPM and then again the the uh, Israeli invasion in 1996. So I was as well one of the organizers in 2006. I was one of the organizers as well as a movement, as I was part of the civil resistance movement against the Israelis. And I remember in 2006, we organized 200 cars as human shields to cross to the south and get food there because it's the Israelis who are invading our own country, irrespective of political position. You know, before I'm actually, this is the part I will interrupt you because it actually, it maybe adds to the story. I was thinking today, when was actually maybe the first time I met you? And I thought it's either during a discussion in Nahwal Muatiniya in 2005. And I think it may have been an Ashrafi in some sort of building in a basement. And there was sort of a group of people talking or during the July 2006 war. Because I was actually, I spent the mo- I spent that entire month in Zico House, volunteering with Oxfam. So I was basically distributing hygiene kits all the time. And I remember you. 
So I, I wasn't sure. I, my guess is I first crossed paths with you during, during the July war, but we didn't know each other, just sort of activists on the street trying to handle an emergency situation. So that, if I'm not mistaken, that may be the first sort of encounter. And I think that's kind of, it speaks to itself that I'm meeting you at a time of war. And we're both sort of trying to do whatever you can as an individual during that kind of conflict. I won't interrupt you further. Please keep going. No, absolutely. And you remember like we were organizing all those protests, anti-Israeli, as, as a civil resistance to the Israelis during that. And then like organizing for the elections, I was the general coordinator of the election observation mission and then the Iskat uh, Nizam, the putting down the sectarian system and then involved in the different protests during then happening on different issues in 2015, the Justin campaign and then 2016 I was one of the organizers of Beirut Medinati and then 2018 I was Libaladi and I ran for parliament and things keep on going. And unfortunately, so our generation has tried so much. We've dedicated our life. It's by choice we didn't leave. Mm. I could be anywhere on the planet. I chose to stay because I love Beirut because I don't want to leave this place where, where my story, my memory, my life, people I love is there. And I fought for it. Mean, our generation invested so much for it. It kills my heart to see it collapsing and destroyed and with absolutely no accountability and the sense of entitlement of those politicians who do, cannot see that the, the amount of suffering happening. And this, honestly, this has been, this year has been a good, um, like a good moment for me to stop and rethink a lot of the ideals I have in my, in my head. Uh, there is a moment where we need to rethink our fight. But may I ask you just what, what, and I know that 2005 and you're, you're, you're participating in the anti-Syrian protests in terms of getting the Syrian army out of Lebanon's story, dislodging the Syrian regime's influence over Lebanese politics. But is that your first sort of proper political experience in Lebanon or is it earlier? Because I, I heard that you were saying different protests against the Syrian regime. Was that in the years leading up to 2005? at San Joseph and other places, or, or is it yes. 2000? So it's the build-up to 2005. 96, yeah. 97, 98, it was like the movement, the anti-Syrian regime was very much present. So it mm. was very, was highly mobilized. And then again in 2001, 2002, and then again in 2003, 2004, it didn't stop. So 2005 really is the culmination of all those little protests that you were participating in. But then 2005 kind of, set a different stage altogether where it's sort of the yeah. masses are joining our dream was to to get rid of the syrian regime occupation of lebanon mm -hmm. uh, i call it occupation until today and the reason i'm actually focusing on this is because i think a lot of shared aspirations perhaps diminished immediately thereafter and that is a very solid foundation that you cannot break i think anyone that really tried in 2005 and some of these people i think both of us knew some of them paid the ultimate price uh that that is real that is a real pursuit and that i think for us maybe and dating ourselves again i think you really had to have been there to know what this means because this isn't the first time lebanon protests even though october 17 is a magical experience on its own but it's not the first time and i think it's it's important to note that so 2005 by 2006, I am 
joining one of these human chains. And it's with, I think, Nahwal Muwataniya. I think it was organized by them. I'm trying to remember exactly who did it. So I'm there. Many mutual friends of ours just sort of showing up. And that's already the time that the lexicon has changed, that suddenly there's division. And I see civil society trying to take the higher road. And that's kind of my relationship, or at least my, my experience with it, that there's a, there's a division. It's a real division. It's perhaps a division that Lebanon itself cannot dictate. It's a division perhaps beyond Lebanon's control. But there's a middle ground where civil society is trying to, in a way, in a way offer an alternative. I think 2011 was the, if I want to call it a moment of consciousness, because mm. let's not forget 2005, the hope was extremely high. 2005, right. 2011, right. assassinations, disappointments, political deadlock for two years. Let's not forget that we were, the country was paralyzed from 2006 until 2008. Yes. We were close right. to not going into elections, parliamentary elections, 2009. Right. Right. So the disappointments were just accumulating. Yes. 2011, I think, already we started to lose hope and there was a sense of enough trying to hold them accountable. We should put down the sectarian system. And I think the inspiration, at least for me, was the, uh, the Arab uprising. Because it was in the same time. And if you remember, the, 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 the slogan was, Ashab Yurid Eskatam Nizam. Right. Which, is, yes. which was very much inspired from what was happening around us. Yes. But I, I don't think we were equipped in terms of mindset, intellectually, in terms of literature, narrative, skills, um, probably as well courage, uh, speaking of myself, of saying, you know what, putting the system down, it's not enough to have an agenda. It's not, have, it's not enough to have policies and solutions and do campaigns somewhere the, the struggle should move into another level of political competition, political confrontation. And if you remember most of the, of the protests that happened between 2011 and 2015, and 2015, the youth think was the, where those slogans have, have become mainstreamed, is the whole idea of and I agree for me, it's accumulation. I understand for the younger generation who would like to to see each moment as this is the moment, but you know, it's it, it's legitimate because everyone feels the moment I started is the moment where things are started to change. So I don't, I, I understand people who would like to see what's happening in the country as the moment. Like for example, um, 17th of October, that's the moment. Oh, you know, it's a jump. For me, it's the accumulation of experiences and narrative and discourse and agenda and trial and error that is somewhere in the collective memory of all of us in a way or another. You know, I actually remember attending a, an, a it must have been an, either the opening or perhaps a soft opening, I'm not really sure, in Badaro at, at Beyond and Beyond Reform Initiative. I'm, I'm standing on the first floor in a, in, at the intersection, at the entrance to Badaro. You're there and a bunch of civil society people are there talking about the region, not about Lebanon. And I remember that being a very attractive way of tying Lebanon's story to a wider story. But looking back now, was it that we were actually really just, we were the first flavor, if you will, of a widespread resentment against 
poor governance in the entire region, that, that Lebanon perhaps had a lot to offer in terms of trying to explain the obstacles and the hurdles. And the reason I'm asking it this way, I always associated you in those years with Libya, with other countries that were going through hell, and there's your name trying to offer some hope. And did you see your role in a way in trying to make the case that these are wider struggles and, and shared pain? Or is it really just a, we started and those other countries caught up and they started it too. And then sort of there's synergy. Cause I, it seems almost too, it seems almost romantic that the, that the, the roots are planted and suddenly the region is chanting the same chants and Lebanon is doing it too. So I was wondering how, how you would reflect on that stage and, and whether or not Lebanon's story is part of the Arab Spring at the end of the day, or is it something that is really sort of on its own and it's unfair to maybe compare too much to other countries that, that have been protesting? I, I think we're absolutely part of the, uh, uh, the Arab narrative. And I think mm. the, maybe we can be different in the form of the state. So yes, we didn't have a dictatorship in Lebanon. It's not an autocratic system, but it is in a way. So in a way to, to say that, yes, there is a, a state capture and there is control, but it's more sectarian than comparing to the dictatorships, autocracies that we've seen all around us. But we've been shaped as an individual. I've been shaped by a lot of the stories in the Arab world. And yes, for the last 10 years, I've been heavily involved as an activist, but also because I gained so much experience that uh, as well, I was as a as as an advisor. So I've been working. I contributed to facilitating the grassroots national dialogue in Libya for a new social contract back in 2012, 2013. I was involved right. in Yemen uh, yes. dialogue. I worked in, in the Gulf and, and in Syria as well during during that phase in Jordan and Tunis. And I think I was very much inspired. Like I can go back to the Libyan experience. So I used to, the experience of bringing all stakeholders together into one, one sphere mm-hmm. for a new social contract, even the ones that you hate, for me was the moment of consciousness, something I would never do as an activist in Lebanon. Suddenly the Libyan experience made me realize that maybe eventually we need to reach there, but in order to, to reach there, we need to make sure that the most vulnerable can sit on the table. The ones who are suffering can sit on the table, are already equipped enough to sit on the table. Mm. So just to say that I think I am shaped by a lot of the stories and the Arab Spring particularly, and I wrote a lot about it and published a lot about it because I was so much inspired by this. Equally as well, I think we've been inspiring for the Arab world. And this is why when you see people of our generation in the Arab world, there's a lot of, um, especially the secular movement in the region, there is a lot of common pain but also common aspirations right and and I, i'm thinking of the saudis i'm thinking of of the tunisians i'm thinking of the jordanians the syrians so also those big generalizations about the arab world i don't uh, conform with in in no way and i saw the arab spring as an opportunity for us to create more alliances and more collaboration and more exchange of knowledge and possibilities and practices so in a way, i still do Okay, that's interesting. So even if you fast forward until today, it's still a similar experience. It's not that Lebanon situation stands out too much. Because I, I'm always curious about just how just how relatable the the stories are, especially when it comes to, you, just, you said it, I'm a, a sort of a direct challenge against tyranny and, and dictatorial rule or even military dictatorships. And then Lebanon's sort of very strange 
dance. Look, if, if, we, shift the, if we shift the terms, if we use instead of dictatorships, uh, tribal systems, and mm. the tri- could be one tribe or multiple tribes, so we're not so different. I agree that there is something that we offer to the Arab world, and until today, is the space of freedom that we have. Yeah. And I think we should be extremely cautious not to lose it. Going from civil society, which is, which is very mature in Lebanon, and I think has a lot of experience in terms of dealing with crises, whether it's the July war, or even for that matter, whether it's post-blast trauma, I think everyone should be appreciating civil society's role in Lebanon because without that, this country would be in a far worse state. And that's not necessarily what civil society should be doing in terms of doing the state's job all the time when it comes to emergencies, but it does it quite well in Lebanon. But that said, there's a shift. And you mentioned it in 2011, where suddenly it's not just about holding the state to account or observing it at a distance, it's trying to enter the halls of power. And I remember the Ustink protests sort of giving birth to Beirut Medinity, that it's almost at the same time that suddenly you have these, you have civil society acknowledging that they are going to try to enter the halls of power, albeit the municipality, but still, it's a starting point. It's an important starting point. And then it's almost like it didn't happen. The story ends too soon. And I, I want to just psychologically ask you this question. Uh, as somebody who's, let's say, supporting it or advising it or trying to sort of trying to institutionalize civil society in a different way in Lebanon. Was that a, a, a massive setback for civil society back then? And did that sort of pave the way for this real venom against all the actors today, that there's real disillusionment? And I, I ask it because I, I'm trying to find that marker where it becomes personal. And this would maybe tie into other issues that are affecting all of us today, but they were shelved. And they were shelved maybe, maybe I'm guessing, for those reasons. So if, if you can take me back to 2015 and 16, these, these sort of energy, accountability, you stink, Beirut Medinity, and then the, the rapid fall of, of that moment. If I want to look at it from a, a temporal perspective, I, I don't see it as a fall. I see it as a mm. fall in this moment because this, look what, where we are. But if I look at first civil society, it's the civil sphere where individuals come together around common interests, common agenda, rights. And my slogan in 2018 was moving from civil society to political society. And if I look at the evolution, so I think civil society that is more issue-based mm-hmm. is, is a, a, a critical exercise for political socialization because we don't have opportunities for political socialization. So usually you're politically socialized at school or in, in political parties in mature democracies. We don't have this. So civil society is the only sphere where I discovered that there is something called citizenship, that I have rights, I have duties. Right. I can participate. Right. It's yeah. my right to participate. I think this exercise has allowed 
a, a p- political consciousness within the civil society for some people to start thinking we want to shift from civil society to political society it means we have a project for the country and this project there are individuals who are willing to represent this project in the state and move the state to this dream project that we aspire for and for this to happen we need to shift from this advocacy attitude this demanding change to supplying it. And I think this has been an evolution. So I would say 2011 started, 2015, we started to realize that we need to play a bigger role. If you remember, so the Houston campaign was expected to put a solution. And then 2016, it's the first electoral politics, means there are people who can be running the city. And then 2018. So if I look at the, if I want to be hopeful, if I look over time, this is a very healthy evolution of the civil sphere mm. moving into um, a new generation of people who have been politically so, politically socialized with common values, with shared values, and say, now it's about time to um, enforce the dream that we would like through political competition, through political confrontation. This was never a possibility during previous activism time. And I see this as a very healthy um um, new mindset within this field. At the same, and because also when we say I talk about civil society as a civil society, it's everyone. Huh? So in, civil, yeah. in the civil sphere, there's everyone. There is yeah. the left and, and right, the liberals and the conservatives. There is, there is everyone in this field. There is no one civil society. It's not a body. But look, it's fascinating. The narrative of civil society in the country, we started to uh, call people and initiatives as civil society as if people imagine it as a body. Why? So it's civil versus political, because politically it became too corrupt. Right. Civil is has good values. It's about rights and duties. Yeah. It's it's not a party. It's not a sect. It is a society. It's more open. And then, and I think this is a very healthy narrative that society has created by default because we had the need to do that. But I think for the last few years, and I think this is where our responsibility for the coming phase is to move into a political society that shows a different model. And will this have some ups and downs? What will be the price? Maybe the price would be too uh, too high. I, do, I hope not. But I wouldn't say over time that, that the game is lost. The game is not over yet. But that, it's that, It's but ugly. I, I, it's I, not I'm, over I mean, I'm I'm really sorry to make it too blunt because I know it's not it's not fair just to sort of throw something at someone, and I know it's it's a very long process. But 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 the 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 major defeat for Beirut Medinati in the municipal elections did it energize at least at least you did it energize you to then sort of try and enter parliament? No doubt that 2015, because it was waste and because the Houston campaign, this has created more frustration as much mm-hmm. as it created hope. Mm-hmm. And the municipal elections was the first exercise of saying, we're not anymore demanding change. We're ready to assume responsibility. When the civil society means citizens in the public space are saying, we're disappointed. We want to hold you accountable. The state is weak, cannot hold you accountable. Now is the time we assume responsibility to build the state and hold you accountable and put you out of of the political sphere. Because 
because a lot of discussions were what are the strategies that are at hand? What can we do? We're not going to hold arms. We're not going to go violent. We've been demanding change and it's not happening. What is the only tool to impose change is political confrontation, is, is fighting in the directly in their own sphere, because it used to, we used to th- see it as their own sphere. We have nothing to do with the politics. Politics is ugly. My mom used to tell me, like, don't go into politics. This is not for us. We're a decent family. So just like this narrative. Right. So I think this has been a revolution, and this has pushed me to go for the path of, of running for parliament in 2018. The 2016, 2015 inspired 2016, 2016 inspired 2018. I'll, I'll, I'll say this from my side, having sometimes looked out my window and seeing you in Ashrafi, or even on Facebook, you were sort of, you were expressing your views directly. It was from you. And I, I hope I remember this correctly. Um, it's a chance encounter with Nadim Jmeid in Ashrafi sort of run into each other and you're having a debate on the street and there's photos taken of it and this is real it's it's real grassroots-esque it's very uh it's just how i imagined what that would look like and it looked exactly the same it's you're there expressing what you see as as rotten and trying to move things forward so so there is something there at least in terms of the beginning the motivation that I saw, and you said it at the beginning, you're confronting in a way the demons of your own community. You're willing to confront something that is that is that is real. And the prejudice against Muslims or whatever you want from the civil war until where we are now, holding your own to account. And I think that's kind of the that's the bigger story here. So Nadim Jmeil, the old guard, representing an old family, representing a very old party, and you're able to confront. I, I think the first moment of, I don't want to say it's friction, but more in, I approached you and I saw you at Cayenne and we're both having a good time. And I kind of went in a different direction. And I, I told you that I think there's something missing in the story. That was Hezbollah. Now everyone kind of has their views on Hezbollah and they speak about it left and right. They speak about the group on their terms. Some are very loud, some are quiet, some don't. But now you can't find, there's, no, there's not one room, one clubhouse room, one sort of TV station. There's, there's not one area where Hezbollah is not discussed. But back then, it sounded like there's a, it's a deliberate decision to avoid that topic for now that it's perhaps strategically better to focus on the things that are impacting all of us. And that's less to do with sovereignty and security has more to do with really what civil society is there for. And do you see that as not, not necessarily a mistake, not a mistake, but more that it didn't resonate as much as it should have because there's something so central that was left out of the equation. Or am I getting that wrong altogether? That had it been addressed, you think that it may have been even less appealing to sort of enter the stage and try to push through? Because I, it's hindsight, but that's really the beginning of our recent conversation, which I'm going to get into. But I, I think it, the seeds are planted there. So if you can say as much as you'd like, just in terms of deliberately avoiding one hot issue, but, but able to tackle pretty much all the rest. And that includes Nadim Jmail, and that includes, I think, 
everything, economics, social issues, and the like. It's it's complex. So <laughs> it's, it's I, I can't answer in one sentence. Sure. Um, look first. Like when we met over the stairs, I, I was saying, so I come from a Christian background and so, and I have an agenda, a secular agenda. Yes. Um, it's very easy to be assimilated and associated to the Christian parties because look what happened since 2005. What happened 2005 onwards, um, uh, March 14th, and particularly the Christian parties have been using the issue of Hezbollah as a tool for fear, to mobilize Christian fear that, look, if you don't vote for us, Christian parties, Hezbollah will come and take over. So somewhere unconsciously coming from this background, I was always afraid if I, if the issue of Hezbollah, I was always against Hezbollah. I was always against all sectarian parties, including Hezbollah. I never considered Hezbollah as the ultimate problem. Mm, mm. But Though I can see the risk that Hezbollah bring into the, the, the Lebanon dream I have, but Hezbollah uh, has been, the issue of Hezbollah has been associated directly as a sectarian tool to mobilize the Christians to, to, vote, to vote for their parties. But So when I met with Nadim Ijmayed, for example, Nadim's only agenda was Hezbollah. He has absolutely nothing else to talk about because this was his main sectarian mobilization tool. If I fall into this, means there's absolutely no difference. This is why the, when I asked him to go for a public debate, was to invite him to discuss about other things, about social issues, economic right. issues, financial right. issues, environmental issues. And he didn't show up because the only tool he had was this. Keep in mind, during um, 2018, I had a full plan for a strategy for how to uh, as well uh, deal with Hezbollah issue. But true, I always perceived Hezbollah as an equal threat for the Lebanon I want to live in to other political parties. And here I apologize. And I told you this on the stairs. And I think I was, I think part of it is, is uh, naivete. Part of it is this fear, my personal demons um, of not, not being assimilated with the Christian discourse, sectarian discourse, and Hezbollah being used as a sectarian tool rather than a, a core sovereign issue. And part of it is as well, um, um, uh, the problem is too big that makes it uh, sometimes this feels of impotence in trying to deal with the Lebanese case. So it makes you feel sometimes that whatever you do, there is this um, core problem, organic problem that you cannot deal with, so you'd better go deal with uh, things that are less core in in the modern state. I apologize, and I judge you as well. I told you this on the stairs. Jaber, since, since, no, no, I'm going to interrupt you here for a moment because I want to. Sure. I, I'd like to sort of flesh this out properly before you go further because you've already you caught me off guard on the stairs when you apologized. And actually, I was, if anything, I should, I should have been apologizing to you for wasting your time when you could be just talking to your friends. And I kind of came to you and I sort of, I, I poked a bit and I, um, you know, what I was really going to say before you, before you offered that apology uh, was there were months on end, I was giving my walk Beirut tour 
and I was getting requests to join you. And I couldn't understand. I just couldn't understand why are people reaching out to me to join you? And it made no sense. And then I realized later you were using the hashtag walk Beirut for, I think while you were walking in Beirut from, from building to building and neighborhood to neighborhood. So suddenly I'm, I'm kind of trying to explain, no, no, it's not, it's not what I do. I actually give a tour. <laughs> if you want politics, follow Jaber Dumit. I never really told you that. No. So that's what I was going to say on the stairs before the conversation went different direction. I was going to say, I hope I sent you enough people because they, they, kept, <laughs> they were very sweet and very sincere. We'd like to support your cause. I'm like, this can't be me. I don't really. I don't, oh, cannot. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've, I eventually, I think I acquired the hashtag at some point later. So that, okay. and then by then the, um, the, the elections were over, but it was just funny to get daily messages of like, we saw you and we believe in you. I'm like, this, this, this doesn't sound right. <laughs> it's you. But, but going back to the very sincere, very honest, unusually honest uh, acknowledgement. And I'm not going to speak on your behalf. I'll, I'll let you say it because I, I really appreciate the way you're saying it, that you, you sense that maybe there was a strategic a decision taken because some things are beyond Lebanon's control and avoid it, but that may have also inadvertently not contributed to the downfall, not that, but more that it may not have been the smart move to make in terms of ignoring what is very central to our story and more visibly so now. And I'll let you say as much as you'd like, because you're being very sweet about this. So I won't interrupt you further. I'm sorry about that. But I'm a bit embarrassed when somebody's very sweet, like what you're doing right now. And I, I, I apologize for, uh, for not knowing what to say exactly, but it means a lot. And what you said on the stairs really meant a lot to me. So I'll, I'll let you say more. Well, also, we, I, I don't want to divert the discussion, but also because, uh, you know, like we, had, we always had this, this relationship together without necessarily seeing each other often, but we were, you were always present in all spheres that like in the fight, in the struggle, you were, you were always somewhere in every sphere. And, and I told you a few times, before I got to know you well, like on a, on a personal level, every, everyone who visited this country loves Beirut because they've been with Roni in Walk Beirut. And I think if I want to imagine the image I would like the world to see of Beirut, it will be I will send them to Roni. And I, I probably like sent hundred, hundreds of people, friends coming over saying, go do this walk Beirut because I knew everyone who, who was with you always came back in love with the city. Now I know as well, you've been um, in all different spheres and with, your, with a lot of um, genuineness and sweetness and, and drive doing all what you're doing, including in this moment when many people are losing hope. So I want to thank you for keeping uh, keeping some light somewhere so and thanks for inviting I, I didn't give you enough compliments I think you deserve a lot the city owes you a lot like we owe the city a lot it owes you a lot as well for uh, for the way it is you represent you're very kind Jupiter. going back to Hezbollah <laughs> going back to Hezbollah so <laughs> what, what a segue what a segue <laughs> no absolutely like <laughs> <laughs> First, like, I say I, I, I was naive, and the, the naivete comes from, I, 
I always thought that Hezbollah will not dare to go into that level of of uh, violence and threat and using tools. I always thought that somewhere Hezbollah will not use those tools. And I'll, I'll, I'll say what they are. Second, my fear, my personal fear of being assimilated and associated with the Christian parties. Right, yeah. Also, look, if we look just for last year, Hezbollah has been able to do what no political party dare to do despite all their ugliness. They never did. They never did to send a thousand thugs to beat ordinary citizens on the streets and kill people. And there are people, common friends who have been killed, assassinated. No one dared to do this. No one dared to claim allegiance to a foreign power publicly with Mm -hmm. absolutely no shame. No one dared to do this. We know they have their sponsors. We know that they can play any card that they care less about Lebanon and its sovereignty. No one dared to go publicly with no shame to do this. And third, no one dares to control their constituency the way Hezbollah does, ideologically and with fear and with money and with uh, religion and, and with threats. Why? I think this is where I felt... I, I, I knew that, but this is why maybe I was so naive and I apologize for, for this. And I think this last year has been a very good uh, experience to stop. And I've been away from any public sphere. This is my first uh, public engagement for probably five, six months because I, I needed this time to rethink some of the premises that I've designed my struggle upon. And I can't, I, ca- I can't not see the... the the problem, the core, pro- the, how Hezbollah is the core at the core of our inability to build a state. Then the discussion is what to do about it, and that's a whole different discussion. Well, and also one one thing I missed in this is about this feel of impotence, but also because look at the situation now. When you reach a moment of there's arms and money and and such. Um, such a direct sponsorship from a foreign country, it makes it very difficult, and ideologically, it makes it very difficult to, to change it, to, to fight against it. And let's acknowledge this as well. It makes us feel imp- impotent sometimes. The last time we spoke, before running into each other in Jamaisie, which I'm, I'm glad, I'm really glad we did, at, we met in the protests in Martyrs Square. I don't remember what was happening that day. It was maybe November or December. All I remember is uh, <laughs> running into you and sort of like, man, this guy's really in shape and I'm gaining weight and becoming fat and I have a belly and you're like, you're trim and I'm like, shit, bad. how does he do it? And then sort of running into you and I, I deliberately brought it up. And I, I, I know that it was an uninvited opinion. I think I just sort of, I, I, I think I saw my, my, my passion and your passion and this, the principles you stand for, I mean, they're the same. So it's not, you're the person I would want to talk to. I would not want to talk to somebody who's blind to everything that's happening and, and ideological. I actually wanted to see why you sort of felt certain things at a particular time. And I think, I think it's really the last, maybe it's since the blast that there's this, it's the feeling of not just impotency, 
but that so many bad things have happened and and this particular group is always on the wrong side that includes the most recent assassination Lukman Slim and yet the impotence is there too and i feel it and i feel it as somebody who's been directly impacted by it but in every way there's not much you can do and it's very easy for someone like me to sort of reach out to somebody i respect and admire and say why aren't you saying it the way it is about hezbollah but on your side do do you think civil society the way we understand it in lebanon would survive if they were more open about their criticism towards hezbollah or do we have the civil society that in a way is tolerable for a group like hezbollah and i without naming names it's not like personalities and characters that are more appealing to hezbollah than others not that but it seems more and more that the views you just expressed right now the ones that resonate with me they aren't there when it comes to the discourse in civil society it's just not there if it's there it's happening on the fringe it's not happening in, in the center and there's almost a deliberate decision taken always to just get out of it get out of it the, the quicker you get out of it the more appealing the conversation this could be in clubhouse this could be in any forum where the moment hasbullah comes up it's almost like the conversation shuts down and i'm speaking specifically about civil society not the usual suspects not how does samir jaja feel about hasbullah today or for that matter does jibran basir reconsider his relationship today or how sad hadidi's survivability depends on hasbullah today none of that more the civil society that do you think enough people have caught on to what you just said and am i getting it wrong am i reading it wrong or is that really a stumbling block at the end of the day that the moment you talk about this group's capabilities the conversation ends honestly i don't know i don't i can't um, i don't know uh, if civil society but we cannot talk about all civil society because it's not the mm. body if there mm. are some people groups have evolved into realizing the danger that uh, that hezbollah brings to our ambition to build the state mm. and hezbollah has lost a lot of those like me who used to say killun yani killun and they're equally responsible i was one right. of those right how he, how he lost many of us and i think many are conscious today that the problem is deeper is mm. that when he accused people like me who have always been not neutral uh, equidistant from all political parties so for me hezbollah is equal to uh, lebanese forces and and kataib and tayar and ishtiraki and all of them and fbm and uh, so they're equal an equal problem for the secular agenda the secular state that i dream to live in I think Hezbollah accusing citizens like me, like you, who are going on the streets because we want to live in a decent country, accusing us of being traitors, of being manipulated, of being funded, and um, having the the guts to go and beat us on the streets. I think there is a limit to this. I think think it was a very wrong move. If I want to advise Hezbollah, I think it was... A stupid move to lose people like us who used to equate Hezbollah to all, all of them. No, they're not equal. 
what they can do, no other party. It doesn't mean that I let go of my core premise of killun, yani killun, mm-hmm. with no with no exception. At the same time, no, Hezbollah is a deeper problem and a more difficult problem than all of them. It doesn't mean if we solve the problem of Hezbollah, everything else will be solved. Not at all. Right. It, it doesn't mean that we should let go of our other agenda items, being political reform or social or economic. But we shouldn't consider that the problem of Hezbollah is an equal problem. It's a deeper problem and more difficult to deal with. That's and a we very... should accept this. I couldn't agree more. And I want to wrap it up with, with really what you consider ways. I want to say something before you. Of course, it. please, please, please. So I, did, I didn't present my apology. I, I, I want to do it. I want to do it on Beirut Bayan and with you directly. Because I'll tell you how, how I used to feel. I used to judge you and and few people like you who, who went through a similar experience. You lost your father as like, you know, this guy because he, he lost his, his great father that I respect a lot and I met several times when he was a minister of finance. Because of this experience, you're biased to consider every problem is a Hezbollah problem. I apologize for this. And I was the naive. And I think you were right. And people who were like you, who are like you, are right. And uh, it's important for me to say this to you and to, to many, to few people like you to say, I reconsidered some of uh, my uh, mistakes and I can acknowledge them. I think the next phase, this issue should be dealt with differently. And I agree that we do agree on all issues. This this one, it's not we didn't agree on, we didn't see it as with the same intensity. Now we do, and it's our collective effort to deal with it. So I apologize for judging you for the last decade or so. You know, I wish I could take what you're what you're doing right now, and and like, there's a lot of people that I wish would apologize to me in general. So I wish there's like I could infect them with what you're saying, and just sort of bring them one by one, and just have an apology tour. <laughs> you're you're very very kind, Jalbert, and I I don't know really what to say other than the I think the admiration uh, on my side towards your work and your passion was was always there. Um, and I'll add one thing, and I, th- I think I said this on the steps, uh, that, that, that feeling of th- their capabilities being a central component to the downfall existed before my father was killed. And that's something that's comforting to me, that it's not, a, it's not biased in, in, a, in a, an emotional way, even though it has, it has impacted me completely, it's changed my life completely. But the, the principle and what got me to that conclusion was there before. And something else, uh, and I, if, you, if you don't mind, I'll share something that uh, my father and I spoke about. This could be days before he was killed. He was meeting with civil society members, um, sometimes openly, sometimes not. And in those conversations, there was always the emphasis that the future of this country, it'll be in civil society's hands, that the disappointments of those protests that you participated in in 2005, the March 14 m- moment, not the movement that took shape later, the, the March 14 spirit, if you will, the, the protests that happened leading up to March 14, not the dance later, not the political stuff, more the aspirations, that it's really civil society that will have to carry the, 
carry the burden that the usual suspects disappointed all of us. And since we're there, we're really at those crossroads now where there's really no appeal. There's no, there's no appetite for the political class. It is a very hard thing to do now to defend Michel Aoun. It's very hard. Unless you're a diehard Michel Aoun supporter, it's, it's very hard to offer a persuasive defense of this person's policies. It's very hard to defend Saad Hariri. Hard to defend almost anyone that you bring up now when it comes to the usual bickering. But civil society, I think, has a lot of respect. And I see a lot of, a lot of younger, motivated, sort of uh, politically-minded citizens starting new political groups, trying to enter the halls of power in the coming years. I think everyone that I've spoken to, you know as well, it's a small crowd, but there is appetite and it's coming, in my opinion, from the right place. Yet the wall, which you described, is still there. It hasn't been knocked down. It's actually probably taller and, and sturdier and thicker than it used to be. So let's, let's go there. It's a, it's a difficult terrain, but what are, this, what are the options available right now for civil society to yield a better future so long as this proxy group, this militia, is in its current state? If I have the answer, I would have done it. But at least I would have tried to do it. Yeah. I think uh, uh, the whole world and the whole country has been paralyzed by this question. But look, I, uh, I, think, I think Hezbollah is at its weakest. I don't think that the wall is higher at all levels. Mm. Um, mm. Not only like from like the social and economic uh, problems, but also I think as well, citizens in general, irrespective, and particularly within uh, Hezbollah environment, can as well have, have been disappointed. I feel there is a change in, in all communities. And I think it's across all political parties. I don't think the, the wall is higher. I think because, because and I'll, I'll, I'll specify Hezbollah, but I think all of them are weaker, and this is why they can get uglier. The only problem is that Hezbollah can use tools that other parties might not use or might not be able to use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is the risk we have. But effectively, I think they're at their weakest. Unfortunately, I would have hoped that the price would be lower. It wouldn't be paying the price of the whole country collapsing financially, economically, and socially. I hope it won't be uh, from a security perspective as well. And that's the fear that we're paying the price now. And they're paying the price of this... Um, the sense of entitlement they had for the last few decades. The problem is that all of them are weak. The problem is Hezbollah, when they're weaker, they can use tools that others cannot use. And this might be sometimes paying the price our lives. Uh, it's, it's easier said than done. Uh, but I don't think uh, Hezbollah is stronger today. I don't think the world is higher. But I hope the price will not... I hope Hezbollah will realize that will not make this country pay a high price for them to understand that they cannot they cannot control neither by by having more arms or by having more ideology or playing on fear or weakening the state they will not be able to to win this fight
I hope they will realize earlier than um, earlier than the price that we might have to pay. If that doesn't happen, and this is all speculation, and I, I, I'll say this acknowledging that this is just a hypothetical. The disdain for Syria's involvement in Lebanon culminated in 2005. The real disdain for all types of crises that were impacting us, in particular the trash crisis, but it was really just a, a culmination of a stagnant, eroding state, led to the Ustink protests. A, a wobbling economy that ultimately crashed and a type of politics that is really just horrible for any population. And you have this sort of preserved entourage while the population is suffering. It's just a number of incidents and you, you have October 17, a genuine desire for something else. Can you see something similar when it comes to political violence? And Hezbollah is the most recent construct of this, but just in general, a group that can dictate its terms through violence. Is there an appetite for expressing enough with Hezbollah? Or is that the ultimate problem at the end of the day that Hezbollah is not something you can openly challenge? It's made up of Lebanese. It's based in Lebanon. Its history is Lebanese, even though it's funded from abroad, but still it's a Lebanese group with a Lebanese component. And it's part of Lebanon's story that, there, that you'll never see the kind of momentum against Hezbollah that we saw against the Syrian regime, or for that matter, against the political class. And that you can throw them in when you say, but you cannot say, Hezbollah will be in. That doesn't happen. But could that be on the horizon if things reach that point where the country really is, I mean, it's suffering already, but where it's, where it's in a free fall. And I don't know if we've already reached that point, but do you see that in the cards or is that just that, that cannot happen in the Lebanese story? I'm not sure I got the point. The point is, so Hezbollah and then, no, not Killun, yani Killun, and then ally with everyone else against Hezbollah because Hezbollah has arms. Is this... It's more that dislodging the group's capabilities from the Lebanese story as an expression from within, not a geopolitical uh, struggle, not a deal between America and Iran, not Saudi-Iranian talks or whatever. More that the Lebanese are fed up with Hezbollah the way it exists. Could you see that on the horizon? And then it, that sort of takes a life of its own, where Hezbollah is in a way forced to reconsider its, itself, the way it operates in this country. Un, un, unfortunately, it will continue to be a geopolitical issue. Mm -hmm. No matter what we do, uh, we know it's a And you know, we, we are now at the highest tension geopolitically. Hmm? With all what's yeah. happening with the, with the gas, what's happened with Iran, what's happening between Saudis and the Iranians, we're at the peak of it. Mm -hmm. We cannot disregard this component. No country live in, in a vacuum. Right. At the same time, let, with, with our own limitations uh, as citizens, what is available within our own hands, we should be doing. Because we shouldn't be waiting. 
while being conscious that we know it is it will be part of a geopolitical deal and this might be even a higher price on us and as citizens we don't have enough leverage to stop any geopolitical deal, whatever the outcome will be at the right. same time at the end of the day i'm a citizen in this country and i have those rights and i'm going to keep on claiming that them as long as i would like to live in this country within the dream i have for it to be a secular progressive social liberal state so i'm not going to let go of this fight and we should do whatever is within our own means for this to happen in any case do i see a higher momentum yes i do see a higher momentum i think is there a higher realization that hezbollah is a more is a, is a deeper problem than all political parties yes do i see that the we should deal with the issue from a linear perspective. I think we should keep on dealing with the problem as a complex problem. Yes, it is a it is a Hezbollah problem, but it is as well a political problem and social and economic. Because also building a state is complex without diminishing off the seriousness and the depth of the problem uh, that we're dealing with by having an armed group that is Lebanese and Lebanon for any state is going to be built. So I would say uh, my recommendation would be, well, like my thoughts would be keep it complex without diminishing and keep on considering that what the, 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 the most difficult problem to deal with is an armed group within the country. You know, on a selfish level, because we aired out all these things and you gave me twice the time that we agreed to, I actually don't know what we're going to talk about when we run into each other again. <laughs> and I, I think I'm we sure we'll have like a whole different bunch of stories to share. And I, I think that there will be a lot because I think both of us and you particularly, you've been through a lot. I have a lot of questions for you. I can ask, ask them now, or we can ask them. And when, when I meet you over the stairs, it's your call. I, I have a lot of questions for you that I never asked. They were always in my head. Allah Muhammad Shatah was assassinated. It's your father. It cannot, it's not, um, it's personal, it's not political. It's, it's very political as well. I, I had always this question, but you know, you cannot ask those questions uh, to people who, who, who it's like, it's, it's your father. It's nothing like anything for anyone. So when you say Hezbollah assassinated him, what is, what is the not, not the argument? What is not not even the proof? What what do you, what, why you say this? I want to know why you you believe so much that Hezbollah killed him. I'll answer this question and I'll introduce the answer by saying that the ideal situation is that I don't even have to speculate that there would be. Oh, we've gone to the real cigarettes now. So this is the real. That was a very nice sort of uh, moment. You know, it's like, oh, from electronic to the, let's go, no, let's go no, down. No, <laughs> but I need, I need this. I need this. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'll answer this in a way that if if things were completely on on if 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 things were normal enough, uh, you'd have an investigation. You'd have a trial and the criminals would go to jail and that you, would, you wouldn't have to come to conclusions. You'd be given those uh, conclusions in a fair enough way 
and that you wouldn't have to move on in your life knowing that the criminals that killed him are living wherever they are. So that's the ideal situation that, that myself and I think every, uh, everyone related to a political figure that was assassinated goes through in this country. The reason, I'm, I, don't, the reason I don't need to consider other options at the end of the day is because there is no group in Lebanon that can carry out that kind of attack. And that is my core argument, which is we've spared the last militia. Something that emerged during the civil war that grew and grew and grew after the war ended and is far more capable and far more, far more entrenched than any civil war era militia that came and went. Some of them you experienced up front during the civil war in Jemezi. Some of them very rotten, some of them very violent and, and in a way, the kind of groups you would want disarmed right away they're gone. They're gone. They're part of our past. And there is a group that is capable of carrying out those kinds of attacks today. And that is Hezbollah. That's the most obvious conclusion. But right behind that is my father was very, very uh, proactive in trying to find a way for Lebanon's sovereignty and the way we understand sovereignty in terms of holding the state to account, not holding the multitude of different players and problems to account, having a state that functions, borders, monopoly of violence, he was proactive. And my sense is that when you go down that road, when you touch on what Hezbollah has established, their security apparatus, their intelligence, their telecoms, everything that the way, the way they control the narrative right now, but more importantly, preserve their interests, when you cross that line, you're targeted. And I think it's very quick from being on their radar to being killed. So I, I, I understand my father's career as openly challenging their position in Lebanon, not through violence, not through, um, not through politics the way we kind of maybe see it in Lebanese discourse, not through shouting matches, not through petty pursuits, more in even trying to reach out to the Iranian regime and reconsidering their, their needs in Lebanon. So there's that whole momentum that happened in the weeks and, and more, more months leading up to his assassination. Uh, add to that, for a kind of assassination on that level, in the middle of the city, not in some sort of remote corner, but really circumventing every other security agency to openly have a nine in the morning car bombing in Starco, you have to be in a very, very good position in this country. And there's no group like Hezbollah that can pull that off. There's just no group. So I don't have the, I don't have the, I don't have documents to lean on. I don't have uh I don't have anybody calling me to tell me anything particular. What I do have, though, and this is recent, is a thousand-page report that spells out the political calculations that led to all the assassinations or attempted assassinations in 2004 to 2005, and that's the tribunal. And the, the case is there. These politic, the political parallel is there. The, the narrative is there. The motive is there, and although it's a few years later, it's the same story. 
It's when you cross that line. So I don't know if I answered that. Uh, that's my that's my only way of of sort of being able to firmly believe that the the price we're paying and the political violence that continues, um, I hold Hezbollah responsible. Something happened though after Lukman Slim died is that more and more people came to that conclusion. And I think I never expected this on my side. Samir Asir Square, after Lukman Slim's assassination, going to another assassinations memorial with protesters saying it openly that they hold Hezbollah responsible. So I think the maybe the, the language change and the confidence is more visible today than it was seven or eight years ago, where, I mean, you couldn't accuse Hezbollah the way you can now. So maybe, maybe that's something very new. I hope I answered that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, your genuineness. And I apologize, it's, it's insensitive, because always I wanted to ask you, like, like how, how do you know and how and what uh, what convinces you and i hear you very well no no one can do it unless they have a certain power to be able to do it right and uh I'm, in a way i'm lucky because whether this was deliberate or not it could have just been literally a a a moment that my father had alone maybe in the car maybe he was on his phone his last words are, are online and they're there permanently. And he's comparing Hezbollah's policies to the way Syria managed Lebanon. And he posted it minutes before he was killed. So I, I also have that to lean on to that his last thoughts, his last words are pointing straight at the problem. First, like I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm humbled with your ability to uh to keep going and to sustain your energy and to keep fighting despite this. Um, I'm not sure how I would have behaved if this happened to me. It didn't happen to me. So as much as I'm, um, um, I feel you, I can never be in your position. And uh, so I, I respect you for this, for your ability to keep going despite. Um, May I ask, uh, add one thing before you go down, before you ask another question? Something happened in the last six months, which is that Beirut was assassinated. The port blast killed too much in this city, and it, it destroyed too much of what we love and hold dear. So I think all of us now have a different experience when it comes to this type of loss through violence. It's not maybe the same story. It may not be as personal. In some ways, it may be more, maybe more traumatic to certain individuals than others, but the city was assassinated. So I, I think that's a shared pain that is, that is extremely disturbing for any population. So I'll just add, I'll add that, and please keep going. I agree, and it has been so. The city was assassinated, and also all the violence that happened the last, the last fifteen years. Uh, has been intense. Um, do you think? Do you, do you think that your father should have dealt with this issue differently, so that he doesn't suffer this consequence? 
if if time goes back, would you would you advise him to deal with it differently? I got very lucky. I had a father who thought of me as his best friend. So the relationship was very solid, not one of parental guidance, rather more of uh, we could talk about everything. And uh, I, had, I had a very, very healthy, loving relationship with him. So I asked him those questions. And I'm, I'm happy I did. Uh, I don't think he would have ever lived in a country where he had to be followed by security even if that security was provided. He would rather drive alone and sit at a cafe with people or sometimes with me, or for that matter, he would like to walk on his terms, Ashrafi or the Corniche or wherever, and wear what he wanted to wear, not sort of the suit and tie, more just a beret and maybe a, a light jacket. And I think that's the kind of country that he, he would not live here or let's say he would not be in that position if he could not get that as well. So I, I know that he chose to live what he thought of as a normal life in this country. And there was a cost there to begin with. That included other, there was an, ex, uh, he was exposed in ways that perhaps he didn't need to be, but I'm, I'm, sh I'm certain about something that even if, uh, when the opportunities were there, he could have gotten out through other jobs available. Actually, even to the point that I think they were probably promotion compared to what where he was at that in that sense, almost like that's the job you would want to retire with. I think he was so disinterested in a comfortable, secure, uh, pleasant, sort of easygoing retirement package. And he wanted to in his way, uh, honor a country that he loved dearly and also honor, I think, people that he lost, people that he admired, many of his friends. Some of them were friends from the past and Basil Flehan is one example. Um, and I think he saw it as a necessity that you can't escape this. And once you're in it, if you back down, it's almost like you're deliberately... Uh, acknowledging defeat. And I don't think that was in the cards for him. I think he always preferred a creative solution to, to cowardice or retreat. So all those disagreements that he would have with Saad Hadidi, all those shouting matches he would have with technically his employer or his sort of his colleagues, many of them he couldn't stand. Um, I think he saw the, the purpose of restoring Lebanon the way he remembered it, which isn't exactly a dream come true. It's not like the 1960s is the best example of statehood and a functioning state. Lebanon was never great. Lebanon was never great, but it's, it's, a, it's a point in time where you could hold it to account to a certain degree. And it was livable to the point that if there were problems, they weren't always expressed violently. I think he wanted to go back and reclaim something that worked and sort of use that as the starting point. That was his passion. He, uh, he used to just love watching the marathon go by on Bliss Street, where he used to live, and just sort of seeing runners in the morning 
I think to him, that was the kind of country and city that he enjoyed, just a sense of normality. Um, I, I know anything that I said to him would never change his mind. Uh, any other career would have never been an option for him. And um, he had many opportunities that he deliberately turned down. So in a way, I, I'm glad that he, he showed exactly where his heart was. It was, it was in this city and uh, really, really for this country. And uh, yeah, that stuck with me. That, that kind of passion is, resonated with me deeply. So that's something I, uh, in a way, I, I, I know that he chose the path that was perhaps riskiest, but he did it because he believed in it. There's no better role model than that. I, I spoke too much there. I apologize. What, what do you want to tell him now? Oh, no. Well, Donald Trump was president. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> this, this is how bad the situation is becoming. <laughs> yeah. You thought it was bad when you were around? <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I would say. Do you, do you remember Donald Trump? But I would, I would also, I say this, he was not around, but I know, I know that October 17, the aspirations that sprung up in October 17, I think there's an overlay with those aspirations and people that tried in the past. So the, it could be Samir Asir, it could be anyone who tried and was killed trying. I think they line up. So I believe in this, that he, he saw Lebanon in the direction it was going, he believed in civil society and he believed that they would be the ones to carry through. And I mean, October 17 represents all of that. And I think that's, that was the magic that finally, it was the next chapter that started. So I would not tell him that Aoun and Hadidi are still around. <laughs> Let him rest in peace. <laughs> Please don't. Berri is still. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like we're living surreal, surreal moments. It's like sometimes, like it could be a, a, a nice series. Yeah. But <laughs> but serious. but would you? I'll I'll add one thing here. Would it? Would you say that a lot of these bad actors that are able to live past their expiration date that they're still around largely because a group like Hezbollah has spared them that the more honorable figures or at least the ones that let's say could have played a more positive role they're not with us because of that group but instead you have watered down opponents and real real sort of uh, pathetic entourage today that is still trying to navigate the ship is there some burden there that you would put on Hezbollah, at least in where we are now, that this is the, this is the group that we have to deal with? At least I think the fight would have been easier, more right. more possible, right? Without having Hezbollah, an armed group in the country, because look, in fact, when we look back now, when I look back and see how Hezbollah behaved in in moments. For right or wrong reasons, irrespective, what they they allowed themselves to do. When we look back now, um, 
they can stop any any possibility. They stopped any possibility. Right. Do I think that the others wouldn't use Hezbollah for their own purposes? They've been doing this for the last 15 years. But irrespective, the, the fight would have been easier, would have been more possible. Yeah. With Hezbollah, it, 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 look, every time we talk about this, we reach a moment of what do we do now? Other than discourse. Because mm-hmm. also, this is one of the problems of March 14th, is that not March 14th, the political party is not, not the aspiration. Yeah. Is that all what they did is just having having a discourse that plays on Hezbollah's arms as a fear factor to mobilize their own and to be corrupt for their own purposes. They didn't try to 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 push for an agenda that would make Hezbollah weaker. They wanted to, they wanted Hezbollah as strong because this is what make them stay. So yes, by default, Hezbollah becomes again uh, a, a kind of responsible of strengthening the current political actors who, who do not have the same means that he has. And they didn't use the same means, at least from 2005, they didn't, say, they didn't use the same means that he used, that, right. that went yeah. into using violence for, a political, for his own political agenda. Right. I think that's our generation's struggle. I think, unfortunately, Absolutely. it's going to be the conversation that's played out for the foreseeable I future. This will be too high until they realize that they, they can't keep going. They can't win the fight over people, normal people, whatever they say about accusations and where the, the tools off and you're manipulated. I, I hope they will realize that citizens like us deserve better and they can't shut, shut up, make everyone sh- shut up. It's impossible. I hope they will realize this before we pay a high price. I hope so too. And now that I know that you're really, you are Jemezi. I know when I walk down Jemezi and I walk up to Maran Ula and if I see you again, your, uh, your life story really resonated with me. And now I feel almost lucky if I run into you in, in, on your turf, your, your hometown, your, your neighborhood. So I, I look... I, <laughs> Let's avoid this. No, no, no. I don't want to no? have my own turf. I don't have another, another month over me. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? You're right. Jamezi has become everyone's turf anyway. So it's almost... Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But that you have the wider story. You've seen Jamezi. You've seen Beirut change. Some, I mean, you, you've, you've lived through the Civil War, the post-war era. You've lived through, I think, what the hardest chapter in Lebanon's history, and you're still trying, and that's admirable. It resonates with me. So I look forward to running into you soon, and I really look forward to uh, touching on other terrain that we have never touched on. We may actually agree on other things. Who knows? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> and what I'm sure... Thank you so much for, for inviting me and for hosting me in this. It's, uh, it's my honor. I really enjoyed the conversation. I, I would say it was intense. It was emotionally intense. It has been a while. I'm trying to avoid those feelings. Uh, thank you for uh, making them come up. Uh, it's important. And I salute you for all that you're doing. And uh, it's uh, an honor. And I'm sure I'm going to see you. I'm going to have a lot of conversations to do again. It's the kind of intimacy through the podcast that I always wanted to have with you. So I'm glad we did it. And Jadber, I'll see you soon. See you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening and watching. And a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. 
Until next time, I'm Rani Shatar, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>